The Physician's Road. Create your life in medicine, on your own terms. Today, we are on the path to wealth. Today, on the Physician's Road podcast, we talk agricultural investing, specifically in the wine industry. We look to see if this is a good place to invest, and if it is, what characteristics you need to look for to make sure that you can generate great returns. Go to thephysiciansroad.com forward slash wine to download our free guide on the U.S. wine industry. Again, thephysiciansroad.com forward slash wine to download our free guide on the U.S. wine industry. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free yourself today. Welcome everyone to the Physician's Road podcast. I am Dr. Eric Tate here today. We're again on the path to wealth and I'm so happy to welcome with us uh, Richard Bailey from Adelberg Management. Uh, he is a wine kind of, we'll just say a wine turnaround specialist. He's actually a turnaround specialist and we'll get into that a little bit in terms of how he goes in and fixes broken companies um, and how he has recently done that with a um, winery. Um, and so we're going to use that as a springboard to talk about kind of agricultural investing. Um, personally, in our investment world, we like agriculture as an investment class. We, we invest in specialty coffee. And so we're looking to expand that out and uh, out into other areas. And so whenever we look to expand into other um, realms, we always try to find an expert um, operator in the space. Um, we're not going to try and go in there and learn everything ourselves. We want to find people who already know how to do that. And so what we're going to talk about today is just grapes and wine. And is there an ability to um, invest in that area and in that asset class at some point? Um, and so we're going to try to keep this as educational as possible, just to get a good sense of the metrics of how this industry works and whether or not you know it is an, an asset class that, that makes sense to potentially invest in. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Richard. Um, Richard, Kind of give us a little bit about your background um, in terms of kind of business experience and turnarounds you've done, kind of the breadth of your experience kind of in multiple industries. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate the opportunity to get on and uh, speak to you about this. Um, my background uh, is I've done about 30 years, spent about 30 years doing restructurings for various private equity firms. I started uh, in the late 1980s at a steel company in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, you know, the 1980s was a very volatile period and very difficult period for the steel industry because there was a lot of, you know, uh, foreign steel coming into the United States at, at subsidized prices, which simply couldn't sustain, uh, you know, which, which undercut, frankly, the cost structure of the U.S. steel industry. So, you know, I got in there. I wasn't intending to be a turnaround specialist and a restructuring guy. But I got in there and it was very clear that this was a business that was in a lot of trouble. And, you know, steel is one of those things. It's a commodity based business. You are either it's recess, the most recession sensitive, the most interest rate sensitive. It's the most capital re intensive, you know, and it's such a low gross margin business that you can, you know, I mean, if you're doing 12 and 13, 15 percent gross margins, you're doing pretty well in the steel business. The numbers are so big. 
but that 12 or 13 percent, you if you don't manage this, the business very, very tightly, you can have two to three or four percent of that can be lost in the corners in scrap metal and things like that. So, you know, I, I learned very, very early on that, you know, there has to be a couple of things that make a business worthwhile and that it could run. It has to have people, it has to have product and has to have process. I call that my three P's, my three P method. So I've spent the last 30 years restructuring uh, steel companies, semiconductor companies. I did a uh, casino in the Dominican Republic. Um, and about five and a half, six years ago, I was called upon to do a uh, vineyard out in Long Island uh, named Lieb Sellers, which was owned by a private equity group. Now, private equity groups call me because the one thing about private equity guys that I have found and, you know, is they're all extremely smart and very well educated on how to monkey with a balance sheet, but they really don't know how to run a business, how to, you know, the day to day aspects of running the business. So they call me. Um, and this group had just purchased the vineyard called Lieb Sellers uh, and also had a custom crush facility called Premium Wine Group in February of 2013. They called me in March of 2013 and asked me to evaluate it. So I was, you know, I hopped in the car, went over on the ferry from New London to Orient Point, New York and Long Island, you know, drove in amongst the, all the other beautiful vineyards in a beautiful agricultural area that I didn't really even know existed. And, you know, and I took, uh, I looked around and I kind of kicked the tires and I was like, this is a pretty nice business. I mean, the assets are beautiful. It's in a wonderful location, but I'm not sure I know how to do, how to fix this because, you know, a, you know, I mean, I, I, I like wine, but I'm not a connoisseur. Um, and, you know, I've never been in an agricultural business or a consumer product you know, business. And at the end of the day, wine is a consumer product. Um, so, you know, I kind of wasn't sure how I was going to deal with this. And then I went to um, look at the custom crush facility, which is basically an industrial facility, an industrial winemaking facility where they made the wine for about 20 of the 40 vineyards out on Long Island. And this was, you know, 30,000 square feet steel tanks. And, uh, you know, and it dawned on me, I walked in and I went, okay, now this is a business. This is, this is an industry. I can, this is just, now we're just talking manufacturing. We're talking a product that comes in one door, it gets transformed into another product, and it goes out the back door as a finished product. That part I could get. I could get my arms around. Uh, so the problem was the private equity firm, and as you will, a lot of wine businesses are purchased by wealthy guys or something like that as, as, as vanity plays, quite frankly. And the private equity guys evidently uh, did it as a vanity play as well because the place was just, you know, the lead sellers, the part that actually sold the wine was in terrible shape financially. On about a million and a half dollars a year, million two in revenues, it was losing a million five. And yeah, so that was tough. So I said to, I, so I got in the car after spending three or four days out in Long Island and I drove into Manhattan and sat down in the private equity firm's nice big conference room on Madison and 45th. And I said, you're going to lose all your money. I said, you know, unless you sit there and, you know, kind of get a little bit of discipline in how this business works. And that discipline, you know, was that you have to sit there and change. A, a you have to sit there and identify how you're going to sell your wine. B, you're going to have to sit there and, and make sure that there are processes in place so that every time you do it, you're going, it's going to be the same. I said, and C, you have to get the right people in, in there. And then you have to give those right people what they need and just kind of step out of the way and let them go.
Perfect. And I'm going to stop you there because I'm going to let you do a case study on this. So before we go there, and you set it up perfectly from a contextual standpoint. And so what I want you to do is now that you've been in the industry, now that you've done a turnaround and we'll get into kind of the profitability that you were able to, to create for somebody who came in with completely fresh eyes, who came from another industry, who didn't understand, can you walk the, a lay person through like myself or anyone who's listening? The kind of the wine business, whether it's grapes, whether it's crush facility, what, whatever the case may be, what what are the business units in kind of wine? Like, what does that look like? Um, from that standpoint, um, let's just start there. Like what, what is that process and what is, what, what, what is there and what kind of is kind of an investable thing and what is, mm, that's a vanity play. There's really no money in that kind of thing. Um, can you kind of break the industry down a little bit for us? Sure. First of all, what usually pulls people in, especially the, uh, vanity play buyers is the assets are, you know, the real estate is generally spectacular. Um, and it's very romantic and there's the whole romance of wine aspect of it. But really, what I tried to do is I tried to look at it as a, a vertically integrated operation, you know, where you had, you know, we literally had cradle to grave, where we grow the grapes, which is a 12-month process. You know, you spend 10 months growing for two months of harvesting. Uh, so we grow the grapes. We had the custom crush facility, which, you know, obviously crushed the grapes, pressed the grapes fermented the grapes, bottled everything, you know, and then send it off to customers or to our distributors. So you had that aspect. But we also had two tasting rooms, which was re- which were two retail places, which worked as wonderful laboratories for us uh, in that it allowed us to sit there and experiment and test with various pricing models. Um, I'll get into later how I toyed around with a dynamic pricing model, just like they do in airline tickets. But uh, it allowed us to do pricing models. It allowed us to experiment with labels. It allowed us to experiment with different varietals of wine to see if they were, and also allowed us, and this is what caused our greatest growth, to experiment with different formats. So when you're looking at wine as, as, as an investment, you can be a vineyard, all right, which you're basically just a farm, all right? And, you know, you're going to sit there and you're going to cultivate your, the fruit and you're going to sell the fruit. And that's all you're going to do. All right. That's a tough way to make money uh, because, you know, first of all, you have the opportunity to sell your wares, your fruit for about three weeks a year. So the other 49 cash is going out the door and for three weeks, cash comes in the door. So you have to budget. You have to be very, very disciplined in order to make that work. Um, You can be a winery, which is what premium wine group out in Long Island is where they make the wine for, you know, other people and premium, I used to say, you know, it does, it does, it provides a service. It doesn't provide a product. All right. What premium does is it takes it, you know, it takes other people's wine, other people's grapes in, crushes it, ferments it, bottles it, stores it, ages it, all those things, and then ships it out when uh, the customer wants. So there's no cost of goods or anything like that. And my joke was, you know, there's two bills that you pay a premium wine group utilities and payroll. That's not a bad business to be in because you can sit there and as long as you have the tonnage of fruit coming in the front door after harvest, you know, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to, that you're going to make money by setting your prices accordingly. Uh, because what you're doing it was you're doing is you're making that wine and performing those services for people who don't have those facilities. Now on the East coast, that's very, very rare. Crust and crush facilities are very, very rare. You go into Napa Valley and there's, you know, many, many of them. 
So there's actual competition, but we had no competition out there. We kind of had our own, you know, little captive, you know, audience out there or captive uh, customer group. Uh, so, you know, the other part is, you know, you have to sell the wine. And, you know, what I like to tell people is growing the grapes is easy. Making the wine is easy. Selling the wine is extraordinarily difficult because, first of all, you're, there is so much product on the shelf that you have to sit there and kind of find a way to break yourself out of that, uh, you know, that commonality. How do you break through the noise? How do you become different than, uh, you know, than all the other labels? When you also understand that when you go into a wine store, you see all those labels, about a third of those actually own a vineyard, own a winery. The rest are, you know, people who, you know, it could be five people who love wine sitting in an office, you know, buying the grapes, having them produced, you know, and having them sent to the uh, bot or having them sent to the distributor. And that's what their business is, which is fine. That's a great business model. Um, but, you know, selling the wine is very, very difficult. And because it's just it's such high competition. Now, there's a great money manager named Byron Wien, uh, whom I've followed in and I listened to and pay attention to. And he always said that if you can't if if you can't be demonstrably better at what you're doing. Be different. And it's almost impossible to be the best demonstrably better than anybody else in the wine business because it's a, it's a subjective mindset. You know, some people like this type of wine, some people like that type of wine. So there's no like, you know, universal recognition of this is the best wine. So you have to be different. And what we did and what I think need is you're going to see more and more of in the industry. But the industry is a slow industry that it doesn't innovate quickly. But what we did is we started embracing alternative formats for our wine. So, you know, the first one we did was uh, box wine. Now, everybody has the same opinion of box wine. Ugh, I'm not touching it. You know, it's the kind of stuff that, you know, you drank early on and, you know, it just had a very poor quality rep reputation. But we decided to sit there and put it in three liter boxes, which is the equivalent of four bottles. And it's the same wine that we put in a bottle. And we priced it accordingly so that it was a significant discount to a bottle of wine. So you get four bottles for like the, the price of three. Um, we sold our first box of wine in February of 2014. Uh, and in 2014, we sold about 1,200 boxes. Uh, in 19, in 2018, we were at about 14,000 boxes at the time that the business was sold. So, you know, clearly that ramped up considerably because we kind of dared to be a little bit different. We tried to be different. That was our point. Uh, then we went to and, and experimented with kegs. Of wine now, kegs of wine. People kind of scratch their head and they think of kegs in a beer in a big steel beer barrel, which isn't really the case. We were doing it in um, 20 liter plastic recyclable kegs. Our target audience for that were the institutional restaurants and the larger restaurants in Manhattan, who are space constrained um, and you know they don't want to sit there and they don't want to have steel kegs because then they have to send them. Because then they have to send them back. They have to hold them. They have to send them back. And, you know, there's just a lot of problems with that. But they were space constrained. It was recyclable. It was easy. And the thing about, uh, about keg wine for a restaurant that does a high volume business is that that glass of wine is going to cost them about 92 cents. They're going to sell it for about $12. So the margins are considerable. And the economic argument for them is pretty compelling. Um, and finally, the last thing we did in 2018 
is we started putting it in cans. That took us a year and a half to put together the whole can program. And we weren't really sure that it was going to be worthwhile. Um, but, you know, there's a demographic that we were playing to and that we identified as our target demographic. And that and was you don't need to and you don't need to share that right now. Just we'll just go from there. Just say that you uh, that you did some market research and we said, that, market, OK, we did, a, we, looked, we did a fair amount of market research. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, we basically we asked a lot of people that we knew, you know, what they liked. Um, and again, we had the tasting room. So we had those as a, you know, as our test kitchen, uh, test lab, uh, so to speak. So we sit there and we, uh, we, we, we developed a program specifically to target them and the companies. We, we canned 40,000 cans of wine in, on the week of January 22nd, 2018. And we expected that to get us through April. The demand was such that we had to can wine, 40,000 cans every other week. And by the time, you know, we were into the summer, we had grown, the business had grown 108% and about 45 to 50% of that was just the canned wine alone. Perfect. And so, so I think we can, so I think that's a perfect way to segue into the case study because I like stories. Um, and so I think you've given a great overview of kind of, there's the vineyard model where you're the farm, um, cash flow constrained. Most of the cash is going out most of the year and you have to make sure that you hit the correct, um, sale at the back end for the two months that you're actually selling the product. There's the winery model, which you say is actually a pretty good model um, where you're basically making wine for other people. Um, and so that's a decent business for people to look at potentially if they're ever offered in a, that type of investment from what I'm hearing. And then you said there's the retail side, which is hard. Um, so that from that standpoint, you would want to get in with a group that has points of differentiation since you're saying that this, there's a massive subjectivity as it relates to what's necessarily best. Would that be a fair assessment of your the way you look at the industry, um, having been in it and being vertically integrated all the way through it? Uh, that's, a, that's a very fair assessment. And if it's done right at the retail level, you can get gross margins of about 65% on your retail business and about uh, 30 to 50% on your wholesale business. But you know, that, again, you got to do it right. And that takes you know, people, process, product. Got it. Perfect. And so vineyard, low margin, winery, decent margin, retail, high margins, if done correctly. Correct. Perfect. Good. So um, you kind of went into the pitfalls about being in the business. Are there any pitfalls in those three areas um, that we didn't cover uh, before we move on kind of to the to a case study of what a turnaround looks like in? Because I think there'll be some great lessons in why you had to be called in in the first place. To, to help people understand what the good and the bad is of the industry. Um, but is there anything specific from a pitfall standpoint outside of, of course, weather with the vineyards and those kinds of things? While most people kind of focus on the weather, I never really did because okay. I learned that there's, first of all, you know, if you have a, a bad crop, you know, or just a low crop yield for the year, you know, you can augment it. It's more expensive, but you can augment that by buying fruit from someone else. Okay. So you can always hit your production goals, your, what you need to make to meet the demand that you're forecasting for the year. You know, like any business and, you know, having restructured a bunch of them, I always find that the biggest thing is making sure this is unique to all businesses, I believe, is having the right people in the right spots, giving them, giving them the, the tools to do what they do well, and then stand back, letting them do what they do well, 
and just kind of course correcting as time goes on. Um, but I don't think that there's any part of the wine business that is inherently flawed and difficult to stay away from. But you have to. But I focus really hard on the people. Okay. When I got to when I got to leave, and I'm not I won't mention any names, but you know there was a there was a sense that you know this was a um, a lifestyle business, you know, and the life that lifestyle meant that they came in at nine thirty, they went to lunch at noon, they came back at one thirty, and you know about three o'clock they kind of drift into the tasting room and have a glass of wine, and I said, well, "What are you doing?" They said, "It's a lifestyle business." I said, "For the customer, not you." Now that's a great line. So so let's. Let's talk about it. Let's take it from a little case study at this point. So you came into to leave sellers, um, and clearly there were problems. So walk us through how you use your three P process, the people, process, and product. Um, explain to us how you laid that on to essentially what was a new industry for you. It was a new industry for me, and the way I brought it into the wine, and the way I brought my management philosophy into the wine business was I looked around and the first thing I wanted to make sure was that we were making a project that a product that somebody wanted to buy. Uh, you know, obviously that's critical to all, uh, you know, to all you know, successful commercial ventures. Um, so we looked at the various, the various products we were making at the time, you know, there, there was no real management philosophy, no real management, uh, you know, accountability, quite frankly, it was owned by you know, a high net worth individual who, you know, kind of owned it as a hobby. And it was, run in the way that you would sometimes expect a hobby to be run, not very, you know, tightly and not very forthrightly. Um, so there was no real sense of, you know, why you're making a certain product, who you're going to talk, who your audience is, who your demographic was, and how you were going to speak to that demographic. Um, now, it was very simple for us. We figured out early on that our demographic was about, you know, a 21 to 40-year-old, uh, primarily female. Um, and, you know, the way that we decided to speak to that customer base, that demographic, was through social media. And not so much Facebook, unless they, we started off pretty strong on Facebook, but less than Facebook over time. But then we just kind of, we got so much of it through Instagram. And so we, you know, we knew who our, our, our audience was, and we spoke to that audience in the way that they wanted to be, that they're used to speaking. The second part is you have to find the people uh, in the, you have to find the people, you know, locally or in, 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 get them in the right proper, the proper positions. Um, the staff that I inherited when I took the place over was, uh, they were there for reasons, you know, outside of, I think they were there, there because there was, it was a job. Not very many, very many of these people thought of it as a career. And we changed that. And what we did is we went out and we found, you know, the most qualified people that we could. We paid them well. You know, there's a lot in the wine industry which is very, very uh, informal and very relaxed and very, you know, I mean, payments under the table, you know, people getting paid under the table and things of that nature. We sat there and you know, we brought in ADP as our paychecks, as our payroll provider. We paid people very, very well. We gave them health insurance, everybody, from me right down to the, the guys that worked in the field. Everybody had health insurance. We gave them a 401k plan. Everybody was, had the opportunity to be in the 401, 401k plan. And as a result, we were able to attract probably the best staff in the Long Island wine industry. 
Now you have to understand on the eastern end of Long Island, there's you know there's a lot of people who are in the wine industry who just you know they just kind of fell into it and yeah they kind of they're casual about it. What we had was a very very serious group of people who, if you gave them goals, you gave them targets, really wanted to meet those targets because they they, they enjoyed that challenge, that management challenge. So that's basically what we did is on the on the people side. Okay, and uh, so. Then, you know, but well, before you move on, so let me just be clear, because, <clears throat> you know, because we we have agriculture and some of the, the things that we do um, investment wise. So what you're telling me is that even your field hands, so the people that you're bringing in, the farm workers who are out in the fields, they had the ability to have health insurance through you guys. They were did they were they able to participate in the 401k as well? Yeah. Yeah, oh. we had we, we gave them everything. We treated everybody equally when it when it came to that. And everybody that was- had, had access to the same benefits package. Now, is that typical? What, what does a typical winery look like in terms of how they treat their employees and what and kind of what that process looks like? Because I'm looking for points of always for differentiation as to well, what one of will the things, keep people uh, above and beyond. Right. One of the things that most of the wineries do is they will pay you minimum wage. It's a you know you you punch your clock. Quite often, you're paid under the table, um, and so there's it didn't create any sense. Doesn't create that doesn't create a sense of permanence. It doesn't create a sense of almost ownership on the employees uh, on the employees part and we tried very very hard and were successful at doing that we brought people from some of them actually moved from advertising firms in New York City out to work with us and as a result of the you know the way we paid and you know the fact is yes to a certain extent it is a lifestyle business for the employees because you're living out in beautiful farmland surrounded by ocean you know i mean it's a, it's a it's a lovely lovely place but, uh, you know, we had people leave their positions at big advertising firms in New York City and come and join us. Wow. Uh, okay. So we really recruited a certain type. We wanted, you know, smart, well-educated, passionate about wine. Um, I also invested in the education of a lot of our employees. And when I got there, there were no sommeliers on staff. And by the time uh, summer of 2018 rolled around, we had seven sommeliers on staff. Now, what we did is we, as a, as a benefit, once they passed their sommelier exam and became a certified sommelier, we paid half of the tuition of that course. So we, invest, so we invested in those employees. And as a result, we had a loyal, stable uh, employee base where many of the other of our competitors, you know, every summer, it's a, different, it's a different set. It's almost like summer jobs in the restaurant industry in you know, a resorted area like you know, Cape Cod or you know, in other places. Um, we, if you went, if you showed up there in 2018, in 2015 and in 2018, you would have the same employees that they're speaking to you and waiting wow. and they're okay. very not, and they were very knowledgeable about what they were selling. Gotcha. So you ended up creating a continuity structure, uh, in place that kind of institutional memory wasn't just walking out the door every season. That's correct. That's correct. Got it. Okay, perfect. That's one. So for those of you interested in kind of the agricultural entry, um, whether it be wine or something else, a big lesson with that is permanency, right? Can, you know, keeping the turnover low um, and productivity high by taking good care of your em- employees and workers, even in what is essentially sometimes a, s- a slim margin business, um, helps from a business standpoint. Okay, so we've talked about people. So now you usually like to talk about process. So let's talk about process and how you took your imprint um, onto Lee when you got there. In many small businesses, there is no process. Everything is ad hoc and decisions are made 
you know, I, I used to say, never ask me for, you know, a spending decision in the hallway. That's not where I'm going to give you an answer. So one of the things that we did when we got there is we had regular management meetings, which I would convene once a week. Pretty much anything was on the agenda. Anything was open. Uh, but everybody came there on with with a particular set of questions that they needed answers for. And what it also allowed us to do, it allowed us to, you know, seek the and, and solicit the advice and solicit the uh, opinions and viewpoints of other people who worked in the company so that we would hopefully come up with the best, most appropriate response for certain situations. What it also did is, you know, and you mentioned institutional memory a moment ago. Um, having a stable employee base, putting certain processes in place keeps that institutional memory go, so you don't make the same mistakes over and over and over again, which I saw many wineries do. They would sit there and make, they would, they would make a wine and they would make 5,000 cases of it a year. They'd sell 250 cases of it. So what do you do with the other 4,750 cases? They discount it and sell it to somebody, thereby devaluing it in the eyes of the marketplace. So, you know, we, we, we didn't make those mistakes. And so we had those types of processes. Uh, we had financial processes. We had human resource processes. You know, I mean, one of the things we did is we had, you know, an employee manual and we had, and our employees all received offer letters, so that, which they had to sign. They had employee manuals, which they had to sign the hand So they knew, you know, just even, even small things like, you know, do we have Columbus day off? The answer was no, it was a holiday. And that's when people come to winery. Um, so, but, you know, we created the processes almost as if we were a much, much larger company. And as a result, many of our customers, our distributors, especially our distributors in states of, you know, like Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina, they actually thought we were a much larger company because we were embracing different types of products. Uh, we had the most knowledgeable staff. We had systems and processes in place where, you know, we created stability and created that image of being a much larger company. And it worked. It was very successful. Great. Okay. So processes. So in the end, this is, this is industry agnostic, what you just explained. Yeah. Um, I mean, for, we have a lot of physicians who are listening. Many of them run their own practices or in, are in larger organizations and will quickly realize that either they do have these processes in place or they do not and where it falls short. And so, you know, I like that we always talk about how we're, we, we are almost investment agnostic oftentimes. And the reason why is the process drives everything. Um, and you talked about kind of the customer selection and those types of things. And so what I hope that people who are listening understand is that, yes, we're talking about wine and agriculture, but the process through which businesses run and whether it's your own practice that you're in or something you're looking to invest in, looking underneath the hood and understanding what the company's process is for creating whatever product it is you're using or for you, um, how you are treating patients um, is extremely, extremely important. And it really doesn't matter what the size of your business is. It's just making sure that you put these things in place one time and they will pay you dividends in the future from that standpoint. And then finally, let's talk about product. Um, you talked about the different types of product extensions that you did. Um, talk a little bit about kind of what you found in terms of the quality of grapes that you had and those kinds of things, just so people can understand kind of kind of from a wine standpoint, kind of how much does where the where the grapes are grown and kind of the terroir and all those things that people talk about matter versus 
what you're getting out the door to the consumer. Um, can you give kind of a little bit of background about that? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, Eastern Long Island is a maritime climate. And as a result, you know, what we had, if we had a, it's a peninsula, obviously, where the North Fork and the Eastern Rhode So it's, you know, surrounded on three sides by water. And that has a very temperate moderating effect on the weather. So we also, to go back to the people and the process and the stability that we created, we also had the same people working in the fields, the same foreman for 24 years. And he lived on the property and everything like that. So, I mean, and he, so he had knows every single vine in all 88 acres. And because he's touched each one of them, you know, thousands of times uh, over the course of his career there. And so the soil was of the right. It's a maritime climate. It's the same latitude, by the way, as Bordeaux, France. Um, but this was a maritime climate. So the soil was, you know, a little sandier, uh, would drain a little more quickly, uh, which helped. And, you know, you didn't we didn't have flooding issues and things of that nature, even when we had bad storms. And, you know, as a result of the maritime climate, we didn't have strong winter blizzards and things of that nature because the uh, the the warmth of the water uh, moderates the temperature during the wintertime and cools the temperature during the summertime, the outdoor temperature. So uh, we were very fortunate to, because of the stability of our staff and crew, um, and because we had, you know, a very strong winemaker uh, who was also a, uh, a very accomplished um, vineyard manager. Um, you know, we had, again, continuity. I mean, we, so we were able to, I mean, there were certain, there were certain acres, certain blocks or parcels that we call them, uh, that, you know, we just would sometimes not harvest for the year and just, you know, and just kind of let them overgrow a little bit. And then we trim them back the following year, you know, after they've gained a little strength, if we noticed that the yield, the crop yield was, was lessening. So, you know, having, having all that, we were able to create, you know, a very strong array of products. Um, we actually went from, when I first got there, there was 27 labels. Uh, when I left, there was 10, uh, you know, and so we, we, you know, we focused on what we did well, as opposed to trying to be all things to all people. Um, so it was a really, it was a very rewarding, very richly rewarding experience, you know, and I do kid, you know, it is, there is a romance to the industry because, you know, you're tethered to the earth, you, 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 you spend 52 weeks a year tending to the vineyard, you know, uh, then you have a, a harvest period of, you have a harvest period of 10 weeks out of those 52. And, you know, there's something very predictable and natural. Uh, you know, you know, in the wintertime right now, they're pruning everything. They're pruning everything back. And, you know, in March, they'll start tying the leaves down, they start tying the vines down, the pruned vines down to the guide wires. So they'll have the appropriate, you know, so they'll grow, so things will grow straight up. So the vines will grow straight up. You know, then they start pulling the leaves to make sure that uh, to make sure that the sun, that the leaves aren't covering the grapes once the grapes have 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 uh, have budded. And, uh, you know, so the leaves are so that it ensures the rightness of them. So and again, going back to we've had the same people working on this, you know, for 24 years, you know, everything was done to maximize our, our crop yield and maximize our quality. And our quality was known for being extremely good. Of course, we had an we had an, an astoundingly good winemaker as well, because they why a good winemaker is is a little bit of a magician, a little bit of an artist, and a little bit of a scientist. Got it. Okay, perfect. And so, what? Just give us a quick kind of 
overview of what it was like when you first kind of took over? Was were, were all of these attention to details in place or was it just kind of nascent laying there and, and you needed to come in and kind of mold it? What 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 did what did it look like when you when you came in and took over? Most of the pieces were there, but they didn't communicate with each other. You know, uh, the winemaker would sit. The winemaker can have an extraordinary influence on the vineyard by saying, you know, maybe we ought to crop back over here for this this parcel. You know, but and then they wouldn't talk to the general manager, so they wouldn't really know what the yields were coming in or what you could estimate the yield to be. So the general manager was at the time was just kind of throwing a dart at the dartboard to figure out how many cases of things he was going to make. And, you know, so there was no inventory planning. So, you, I mean, by the time I was there a year and a half, we knew exactly what we were going to make, how much we were going to make it and when it was going to be in the warehouse for us to sell it. So, you know, and again, that's just process management and having and replacing people who kind of buy into that system and uh, replacing people who don't buy into it with people that do buy into the system. So um, it took two years. I probably could have done it faster, but I wasn't familiar with the wine industry. So I had to kind of learn. I was, I was kind of learning as I go. Uh, but it took two years. And by the time the second year rolled around, we we were the most stable and the most, um, the right, I guess the right word was, was the most innovative uh, because we changed, there's so much that we changed and we became known as the most innovative winery in the state of New York, particularly because of the things that we had, that we had done and we had accomplished. And again, we were educating, we were educating our people. We were, we were paying for them to get their, uh, to get their uh, uh, sommelier certificate. You know, we were changing the formats. We weren't just making the wine and in, in selling the wine in bottles. We were putting it in kegs and cans because that's what certain customers wanted. And that's what our demographic wanted. We knew who, what our demographic wanted because we talked to them, you know. And so, you know, we were able to follow the trends and pick up the trends as, you know, before those trends blew up and became huge, we were still kind of able to say, you know what? Canned wine is going to be a thing because we're seeing an awful lot of it. And we're seeing an awful lot of it on Instagram and these influencers. We paid attention to all that stuff. Before I got there, there was very, very little internal coordination everybody just kind of did what they did and you know they got in it at, when they got in the morning and then they left and you know there was no, wasn't a lot of overall strategic communication i changed that got it and so what i'm hearing you say is from a business standpoint for those listening is that you were in kind of a legacy industry that's i would argue from the outside and i'm not a connoisseur either is kind of stodgy is kind of can be a little bit walled off from the rest of the world in the way that things are done is this is kind of a history of this is the way things are done and either you accept it or you don't. Whereas you came into this and said, you know what, the most important person to us is our customer and what they want. And we will create a company that is responsive to the customer's needs, irrespective of what the, the history of the industry has been. Would that be fair? That is exactly what we did. You know, again, we identified our customer, we found out what they wanted, and then we did everything, you know, how are we going to please that customer. So many small businesses and, and so much in the wine business is about how we want to, you know, how, how the vineyard wants to show off something, what they can do on something. And, you know, that's fine. If you want to do that, um, you know, there's a vineyard out there that sells, you know, their Merlot for $125 a bottle. They don't sell a lot of it because, you know, and because, you know, frankly, you know, it costs about $4 a bottle to make. 
Um, you know, and so, uh, but there's, we try to speak, we, we try to listen to our customers and then try to give them what they were looking for. Got it. And to wrap this up, because we're going a little bit long and so, but I think this is very interesting and there, I think there are a lot of lessons through this process. So for someone who is interested in um, learning more about the wine industry, learning about how they could potentially participate and actually make money doing it, not just romanticize in saying I own a vineyard, but actually evaluate an operation to determine whether or not it's a viable business. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share and impart to someone who's looking at it from that standpoint? The biggest thing to, to look at when you look at a vineyard is to a make sure that they are selling something if you want to be profitable and not just create a long-term you know tax loss carry forward which a lot of vineyard owners actually do is <laughs> the way the way to the way to do that is to make sure and again that you have the product that people are going to sell you have the right people in place and you have the process that makes sure that everything happens on time when it should so you can be consistent so you can deliver a quality product with great consistency if you don't have that product, if you don't have those people, if you don't have that process, or you don't see those in a company, that you have, then you're going to struggle. Did there anything you want to add to that, or you? That's no, that's the, those. The people, product, and process are universal. Perfect. Got it. So we're going to end there. And so for those of you who are who are interested um, in learning more about kind of agricultural investing or wine or anything like that, um, we're going to put together a. Kind of probably a, a, a tear sheet, um, a one pager about kind of agricultural investing, uh, potentially wine investing. And you can go to the physiciansroad.com forward slash wine. Um, and we'll put it, we'll figure out a way to put a download on there so you can learn more about it um, from that standpoint. And so I want to thank Richard Bailey from Adelberg Management for breaking down the wine industry from a business person's perspective. Um, not to say that you're not an artisan and, and don't make a good product, but um, most of my our listeners want to learn how to do something where they can actually be profitable in doing it. Um, and so we really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us um, today on the Physicians Road podcast. Again, we're on the path to wealth. For those of you, please um, go to iTunes and, and rate us. Uh, five stars is best, of course, but please give us an honest review um, and also subscribe. And please feel forward to forward this podcast and the Physicians Road to other of your colleagues as well, so we can get the word out um, about these different interesting um, ideas that we are talking about. Lastly, please go to Facebook. You can join us on our Facebook group where we can have much more in-depth discussions one-on-one -on -one about the subjects that we're talking about on the podcast. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Eric. It's been a pleasure. The Physician's Road is brought to you by Vernonville Asset Management. Vernonville Asset Management was created to help physicians build wealth and create income beyond Wall Street. Through our exclusive private investments, doctors can begin to free themselves from the burdensome regulations in healthcare by creating income streams independent of medicine. Go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get your free report, Wall Street's Biggest Lie. Again, go to IncomeBeyondWallStreet.com to get Wall Street's Biggest Lie and free your today. Thank you for listening to The Physician's Road, where you create your life in medicine on your own terms. Please go to thephysiciansroad.com and sign up for your free guides and resources.